Hey, Fast Talk listeners, we've got a special episode for you today. It's one with Cycling and Alignment's Colby Pierce. I actually appear on this episode as well. It's all about how to pedal a bicycle. You'd think it'd be pretty simple. It's not. Enjoy. Yeah, I'd be curious to get a fit from you as well. Because, A, I don't have many fits in my life after 30 years probably more of riding bikes right i've probably been fit twice in those 30 years Mm -hmm. i'm injury free i get on a bike and i just pedal yada 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 but you and you've seen me just a little bit a glimpse of me and you've probably seen a lot of things that you think are oh yeah he's, he's an athlete he's doing good but i'd i'd like that deeper investigation because I'm just curious to see how you would pick it all apart and say, hey, you might want to try to do this differently. Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today I've got Chris Case to help me unpack all the concepts and details of how to pedal a bicycle. This is a dense episode and we get way in the weeds and high on the dorkometer, digging into all the philosophies about how to pedal a bike. I hope you find it fascinating and be sure to listen at the end of the episode for some postscript thoughts. Without further prognostication, Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today, we're going to learn how to pedal a bike. You thought you knew how to pedal a bike, but I'm here to tell you, you don't. Isn't that cocky of me? I've got a special assistant today. Chris Case is here, and this is a long and pretty technical podcast, so Chris is going to help keep me grounded so I don't fly off into hypothetical discussion land too much. I'm going to try. Try. Um, it's, it's hard to pin down an air sign sometimes, but I got my rock in my pocket, so it should be good to go. <laughs> and he might ask some questions at times, and that is with the intent to help the audience sort of understand. He's going to imagine himself as an audience member yeah listening intently i mean obviously the first question is i feel like i already know how to pedal a bike right you're telling me i don't you don't Ouch. i'm just telling you that because i know let me tell you about all the things i know and you don't well i do know Hashtag that this sarcasm. is going to be in depth yes it's going to be uh there's going to be a lot of chunks of information here but i also want to note that this isn't only This isn't the first time that you've attempted to pack all of this great information into one show. I'm trying to give it a sense of how complicated this actually is Mm. to to disseminate this information. True. It's a complicated topic, and there are a lot of aspects to it that um, are a bit technical, so I'll do my best to unpack those in a clear and concise manner. That said, I have recorded this episode maybe, maybe once or maybe twice before, but... Um, to you just be fair, didn't feel like you nailed it. I didn't feel like I nailed it. I listened to it afterwards, and there were some aspects that I need to clarify and expand on. 
I also am I'm learning to find my voice as a podcaster and the early episodes were a little there's some hiccups and some some bits of flow that maybe weren't quite as cohesive as I hoped. Uh, I still feel that way about my modern podcast. It's always a practice, just like everything. Mm-hmm. So, how to pedal a bike. Chris, let's, since you're here, let's use, <laughs> use you as the example. Okay. When I do a client intake form for a bike fit, I ask my clients, how do you pedal a bike? How do you apply pressure to the pedals? What are you trying to do? And... Also, I'll ask them, do you feel pressure on any particular aspects of the foot? The medial side of the foot, that's under the arch that's closest to the crank arm. The lateral side of the foot, do you feel more pressure near the ball of the foot, in the toes, and the heels? Do you have any areas of discomfort? That more relates to shoe fit. But all of it's important uh, because sometimes these areas of pressure or perceived um, tension in the, under the foot or in certain muscles can relate to not only the, the fit of the shoe, but also the fit of the orthotic and the footbed. And that relates to how you can apply power to the, to the pedal stroke. So I try not to cue the riders too much, but in this case, I'll, I'll give you my kind of outlying principles. Like people frequently give me descriptions like, oh, I'm trying to make circles or, oh, I'm trying to scrape the mud off the bottom of my foot. That's a very popular one, which is a relic from Greg LeMond's book. I try to pull up and push down. Some people give me really interesting and unusual answers such as I'm making trapezoids or figure eights. I mm. don't know. Wow. I also ask people, do you have a perceived power imbalance between the right and the left leg, which I pretty frequently get a yes to. And then I kind of ask them to unpack that a little bit. Some people will say one leg feels more powerful and the other feels more fluent or supple. Hmm. Uh, sometimes those, the powerful and the supple leg are the same. So Chris, if I were to give you this intake form, what what would your response be? How do you pedal a bike? What are you trying to do? I'm going to give you a potentially non-satisfactory answer in that I don't think about it at all. Mm. Excellent. I get on the bike and my legs just start moving. Yep. Good. That's what I do. But yeah. I've been doing this a long time. Yep. So if I'm to place myself in that situation and, and try to break that down gosh, I kind of want to get on a bike right now and, and feel the sensations and, and, and understand and, and tune into my mm-hmm. legs and my ankles, my knees, my everything to, to give you more information. But yep. honestly, it's so... Just get on it, and go. I just get on and go mm. at this point. Okay, great. That's a great answer. And I get that answer actually pretty frequently. Okay. Um, so don't worry, you're not a total freak. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I wanted to be a freak. I want to be... <laughs> I want to be extreme. I want to be special. So that's interesting because I think what that relates to is probably uh, there are several factors that contribute to one rider being able to answer the question that way. One is that tells us something that I already figured out when I did some fit work on you a few years ago when you're preparing for the hour record at mm-hmm. Boulder Valley Velodrome. I noticed right away that you are you are what I would classify as a high-level compensator. Uh, in practical terms, what that means is Chris is a natural athlete. He gets on a bike and goes, which is just exactly what he just described. He's got a very high level of ability to produce force somewhat symmetrically when in a cycling position. And that is nothing more than blind genetic luck, by the way. Right. Um, our sport is very bizarre because it glorifies people who can pedal bikes really quickly and very symmetrically. 
But I can tell you right now that has a very low correlation to survivability in any tribal sense. If you were in a tribe of 66 people and you could pedal a bike really fast, unless that tribe yeah. happened to hunt on bicycles or yes. war with other tribes in bicycle polo, you wouldn't be that much used to the tribe in that specific sense. That said, there's probably a good correlation between your ability to ride a bike like this and run long distances. So that's where I that's how I grew up yeah. running. So not rocket science there to figure out that if somebody's a good bike rider, there's a good chance they're a reasonable runner, although that's not always the case. Sure. Sometimes people are really good cyclists and terrible Ter runners. Yes. Or yep. uh, I I probably could be classified in that sense, although I made progress because I've been working on my function, blah, blah, blah. That said, it's also quite common for people to have a history of running and then they end up at cycling because they've destroyed their joints. That's Labrador chases a ball syndrome and ruins your knees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chronic injury. Um, so when someone gets on the bike and they just sort of pedal, that brings us right into the discussion of how people pedal and really why they can pedal. And from my perspective, I think it's useful to look at it from the lens of human anatomy. So what are humans meant to do, physically speaking, Chris? They're meant to walk. Right. Good answer. Bipedal. They're bipedal creatures, right? We are meant to run and walk. We have to do all these things in our lives. And in order to do most of those things, we have to run and walk. What are those things? They're walk to a water source, uh, walk to a food source, sometimes run after a food source if you're hunting a food source, uh, walk over to talk to that cute girl. Right. Hmm. Um, when you screw up and make a mistake, run from that cute girl. I've heard this one before. Right. Uh, it's just so easy. So when, so these are all running and walking, you have to run from predators and running is quite complex. Neurologically, it's a very high priority activity. So if you're being chased by a saber tooth tiger or a grizzly bear, you're running at maximum pace over ostensibly uneven ground, probably from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, with minimal or no f covering on your feet. We're not talking about hokas or Nike Airs or anything. We're talking about you running in maybe leather sandals, probably bare feet, right? Mm -hmm. A long, long time ago in the cave dwelling type era. So how does the body handle this problem? Well, a couple ways. One is it puts a lot, a high priority on sensory apparatus that is in the sole of the foot. Because if you're running on an even surface and you're banking around a corner or turning to avoid a predator or chase prey and you slide and fall and break your hip or your femur, then you're of no use to the tribe and you're probably going to die. So staying upright is really, really important. So the body, when you run and you hit the ground, your heel hits the ground and the midfoot phase of gait pushes through the arch and the arch is tensioned and then you push off the forefoot. All of these actions of gait have a high degree of proprioceptive awareness built in. There's actually quite a few nerves and a lot of sensor input that happens through the sole of the foot. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. And the implication of that is that if you can't feel what's happening with your feet, you're not going to be able to use muscles very effectively. So this plays right into bike fit. This is why having proper contact with a footbed or an orthotic device in a shoe can be a very key aspect to cycling and bike fit that brings the pedal stroke to life and allows the muscles to fire in the proper sequence and amplitude during pedaling, during the complex and subtle motion of pedaling. The other aspect that's interesting about 
running and walking is that there's a little bundle of nerves right around the SI joints called the central pattern generator. And this bundle of nerves is responsible for basic functions such as chewing, walking, rhythmic action in the body. And it's a very intense bundle of nerves, very highly concentrated bundle of, of nerves that help the body form the gait sequence, which is right, left, right, left, that repeated sequence. So why is it that Chris can get on a bike and just sort of pedal? Because the body's tapping into the gait cycle, which is hardwired into all vertebrates. So if you study infant development, which is something I've been learning more about through Paul Chuck's programs in his academy, there's a normal path of, or a normal trajectory for an infant to develop certain motor biomotor pathways. And it begins, ultimately, it begins by going to the boob first, because that's the first thing all kids do. And then they learn to go through different phases of infant development, including things like brachiation, where they push the upper body up, right? Mm -hmm. And they pull onto, you see a child, a young child, pull themselves up from the floor by using their arms to help pull them up using a desk or a coffee table or something. That's one of several examples. There's also a really interesting one called the inchworm, which is when kids are on their backs and they want to make it across the room to mm -hmm. get to their favorite toy, they do this weird neck scoot where they push their neck out and then they drag themselves by the neck without using their limbs because they haven't developed the muscular control or strength to use their arms or legs yet. And so it's fascinating because we can reverse engineer some of these and do a screen, an infant development screen in athletes and see where some of their potential adult muscular dysfunction lies when you know how to use this system. So if an infant develops in normal pathways and isn't put in heavy clunky shoes too early, isn't put in a, what's the thing called? It's like a, a big ring and you put the kid in the middle and then the harness goes around their mm. hips. It's like a baby yeah, yeah, yeah. walker like, basically. Right. Yeah. Those things are a train wreck for infant development because they basically teach the kid to stand upright before the spinal musculature and the legs are strong enough to do it. There's a natural order to this stuff on purpose. Yeah. So when we make all these weird obtuse baby devices, we interfere with this infant development pattern. The end result of infant development is the gait cycle. It is walking and running. And walking and running are hardwired into us, into that central pattern generator. So, and we can see this quite easily when we cut a head off a chicken. What does it do? It runs across the yard. Why? Because that central pattern generator of the chicken is in, it's ingrained in the vertebra of that bird. How come the, you always use, people always use the chicken example? How come you don't say when you cut the head off a human, it just keeps running across the yard? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> good question. I, there's got to be a reason for that. I can't imagine why. But there is another really twisted example, and we'll put a, no, a link for this in the show notes. It's a decerebrate cat. Yes, yes. So just suspended to over, right? Suspended and over a treadmill, a treadmill of sorts. So they put the cat in a harness mm. and they keep it alive, but they disconnect the spinal cord from the head. Yes. I don't know how they did this, but you can see a video of this on YouTube if you would like to watch it. Ugh. We'll put the link in there. If you don't, that's I'm cool with that too. But what's interesting about it is as they lower the cat via this harness onto the treadmill, the feet touch the ground, the feet start walking. Automatic. And then they speed up the treadmill and it kind of gallops and does its thing. And then they slow down. So again, this is to demonstrate that the gait cycle of this vertebrate animal is hardwired into 
the spinal column of the creature not necessarily dependent on or contingent on the head doing that motion or, or consciously performing that gait cycle. So cycling is just walking and running that's been modified, the program has been modified slightly and learned. How much modification happens depends on the athlete and depends on how natural they are. So if we have someone like Chris, who's a natural athlete, we put you on a bike and you don't have problems. I mean, Chris, what's your injury history in the sport of cycling? Pretty much zero. Right. No chronic back stuff, Nothing. no chronic knee stuff, no neck and shoulder, nope. no Achilles, right? Nothing. So there, and how many years have you been riding your bike? Ah, uh, 20 something. There you go. Yeah. High level compensator. Check. check. <laughs> so, so that's great. Good for you. Other people who have been struggling with injury for years. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm lucky. You. I'm totally lucky. I, 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 yeah. We all have our gratitude for our little gifts in life, right? Yeah. This is clearly one that you got. So, um, when we, when we have an athlete like Chris, his, that means his central pattern generator and his white, his walking and gait reflexes movements have naturally transitioned to the bike very effectively. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that he's got relatively neutral foot mechanics. He doesn't, he's not an excessive pronator. We know that because if he had ridden his bike for 20 years and done thousands of thousands of kilometers on the bike, what's your longest single bike ride you've ever done, Chris? Dirty Kansas, 206 yeah. so, miles. A lot of intensity, a lot of duration at the same time. What, you've never done the three volcano sprint? I don't even know what that is. It's a thousand K in Italy. No, I have not. Jeez, man. Get, get with it. So <laughs> I'm not Lachlan Morton. I don't have the uh, what? ability to do this stuff. Well, I think or you the do time. actually have the, the ability. Time. The time. Is, yeah. <laughs> the time. <laughs> is this a popular or unpopular opinion? I, I feel like some people would say mm. riding a bike is nothing pelling like is, walking. Pelling is pelling and walking is walking. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to, I'm sure there are some other fitters who are going to be scratching their heads and I'm quite sure there are other people out there who will straight up disagree with me. Yeah. Uh, I've got a lot of unpopular, potentially unpopular opinions about the subject of how to pedal a bike. And this basis is probably one of them and that's cool. So as per usual, if you have something to throw at me, you know how to reach me cycling and alignment at fastlabs.com. Let's get the conversation going. Uh, because I do consider this, whole discussion. This is my interpretation of what I've seen in 10 years of bike fitting and 35 years of bike dorkendom and trying different techniques and trying power pedals, which most people probably don't even know what they are. No, I'm not talking about dual sided power me measuring pedals. I'm talking about power pedals made by a guy named Ulla Aspos from Norway. Oh, power cranks, power cranks, Trevor, Trevor Connor from yeah. fast talk. Mm -hmm. That other guy, right. he uses power cranks to this day. They're a good training tool if you use them correctly. Correct. Yeah. So uh, I've dorked out on all this stuff and I've tried midfoot cleat position and we'll get into that a little bit too and blah, 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 blah. So this is just my own massive experience and the reading that I've done to come to a natural conclusion. I mean, I think the body works in certain ways, in predictable ways. People are predictable and their movement patterns are somewhat predictable. Also to add to, to answer your question further and to add to the evidence or reasons that I believe that this is the case, look at how humans mechanically are, well, without going down a rabbit hole of creationism versus evolutionism, they're either made or designed sure. to handle, okay, what, what's, our, what's our most basic physical condition? It's that we are on the planet earth and we are subject to gravity. So unless you're an astronaut or you scuba dive regularly, we forget about gravity because we're always in a gravitational field. 
or skydiver. Those are the three things I can think of where you would really disconnect from that regularly. Or what are those guys called that we see in Boulder all the time that jump off the cliff with the paraglider? Yeah, those two. You see those hang gliders. Hang gliders. I run off the. I ride under those guys all the time. That's pretty cool. Uh, so, unless you're involved in any of those types of activities, you're just in gravity. It's easy to forget about the feel of gravity. Well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to present our, prevent ourselves from being smashed into the center of the Earth by gravity, which means we have to stand upright, and we also need to move around, walk and run, like we spoke about. So you look at the distribution of muscular tissue on the skeleton and you can see that it is designed to help us accomplish those tasks. What is the primary function of that task from the lower body perspective? It's to push down. And so we push down into the earth either to move forward to prevent forward fall or to move forward with great velocity or just to stand upright. And we look at the distribution of muscles on the lower body, the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads, and the calves are all designed to make downforce in some form or another. So that's what we're good at. When you're pushing on a bike pedal, that's what you're doing. We're not going to suddenly turn a human into some completely obtuse creature and give it the ability to do something that it just can't do, doesn't have the muscular mass to produce force. And that directly translates to pulling up at the back of the pedal stroke, which is one of the biggest errors someone can make during pedaling. So there's a seed. We'll unpack why that is and what the logic is there as we get further along. But it's almost, you know, the, the, you can go on and on about how cool the bicycle is and it's a great machine. Mm -hmm. And, and in some ways it's great because it works with our anatomy and it helps us apply some of these things that you're talking about that we're quote unquote meant to do mm -hmm. and move forward with well, wheels. It has to, it has to take our anatomy. That's what makes it such an efficient producer of metabolic energy into mechanical energy, right? And, and if you look humans, evolutionary speaking, compared to other animals, we're crappy sprinters, hmm. right? We're, yeah. we're really poor at sprinting. We're really good at long distance, slow movement. What a bicycle does is take that strength and convert it into either great, even greater magnitudes. Mm -hmm. That's why I think the bicycle is one of the most magnificent machines in the world because it can, I can go ride for five hours and get 60, 70, 80 miles away from my house, depending on what terrain I choose and see the forest and see bears and moose and all kinds of stuff. Cause I live in Colorado. Right. And, um, if I'm smart, I don't even get honked at or flipped off or <laughs> cigarette butts flicked at me. Um, this is true. It all depends on route choice and it bicycle, does. It does. bicycle choice. And whether you're wearing pink or not. Right. So that's, that's what I think is remarkable about a bike. So I'm not saying to be clear, I'm not saying that cycling is simply running and walking. What I'm saying is the pattern of pedaling is based on the pattern, the neurological pattern of gait. Yes. When we optimize that pattern, we refine it. Some people may get more out of refining that pattern than others. Someone like Chris, who's a high level compensator, probably will walk away, will walk away from this podcast and say, well, that was a really interesting discussion. I'm going to go for a ride now. <laughs> right. There are other people who have been battling chronic injury who hopefully will have great insight into their own pedaling technique from this pod and this discussion and will understand maybe what they've been doing that hasn't been serving them and has been possibly causing them injury. Uh, and to outline that discussion briefly, I'll say two things. One is, okay, anytime we're talking about bike fit, we're doing two things. We're balancing the physiology of the rider with the demands of the event. What that means is, you have to be capable of producing supple and smooth power on the bike. And on the other side, the demands of the event means we have to set up your bike for whatever 
demands you impose upon it. If you are doing Dirty Kanza, that's a different than if you're doing a 40K local TT versus if you just want to do recreational riding. So you can be the most perfect Chris Case, highly functional athlete in the world, but I can give you a bike that's set up pretty poorly and eventually Chris would have dysfunction. Yes. Right? I would, for you, because you're a high level compensator, I would have to set up the bike pretty far off the mark. Mm -hmm. You have a bigger range of error than most other riders. Right. But some riders happen to be on the other end of that spectrum where their range of error is much smaller and then bike fit becomes much more critical. It's so you could, my point is you can be the most perfectly supple, uh, you can do athlete, you can be strong, you can be symmetrical, you can do all your, dot all your I's and cross all your T's and have a bike fit that's a disaster and eventually you'll run into problems. Yes. On the other side of the spectrum, you can have a bike that's actually pretty much dialed and still be struggling constantly with your fit. These are clients I see pretty frequently. They come in the door and they go, oh, I've got this problem, this chronic pain, I can't get over it, I'm on the verge of quitting cycling, which is a rough story to hear. And then they go, my bike fit must be off. And I look at them on the bike and I go, mm, I hate to tell you this, but your fit's pretty dialed actually. Like, yeah, we can fine tune this, we can fine tune that. But your biggest challenge is not the bike, it's you for whatever reason. So we have to unpack that. Mm -hmm. So that brings us into the next phase of the discussion. The term you use is that equivalent to uh, micro adjusters and macro absorbers? Are you using them in a slightly different way here? And I don't know if this is relevant to That's, our conversation. That is relevant. Yeah, good. I mean, we always have to define terminology. So I'm using Steve Hogg's terminology when I say high level compensator. Uh, Steve is the guy who trained me to be a bike fitter. I trained with him for about a month in Sydney, I believe in 2011, if my memory serves me correctly. So that's the term he would use. I don't like the term high-level compensator. I mean, it makes me sound like I'm compensating for some other shortcoming in my life. Mm. <laughs> well, I take it to mean that it, high level means you can do it across all conditions, across very conditions, meaning different weather, different bikes. I gotcha. Right? So you yeah. can probably change from your road bike to your cross bike without feeling much of a difference. There's some people who are constantly... I have so many bikes and none of them are set up identically. That's a perfect textbook. As example. an example of, yeah. of something that I can get away with or yes. do yes. with with no repercussions, right? With mm -hmm. no consequences. Yes. That's different saddles, different pedals. Different shoes. I have lots of different shoes yeah. roughly the same saddle height probably the saddle height is the one thing that i dial in reach maybe but yeah lots of different bikes and uh, all that sort of stuff saddle height the functional threshold power of <laughs> yes right <laughs> so on the other side we have the micro adjusters and micro adjusters can come in my experience from different camps some of them can be people who basically don't believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. It's they a confidence thing almost. Yeah, yeah, they don't have the confidence to believe that they are good enough. They're still battling what I might call the primal fear, which is I'm not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not handsome enough, don't have a high enough VO2, don't have a long enough male genitalia, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. See, they're compensating for something. They're compensating. <laughs> no. So when we... When we have a rider like that, they tend to fidget with their equipment because they're looking for an answer in their equipment. And really what they maybe ought to be served better by is to just 
relax and let the equipment be and train more and find faith in themselves, find faith in their preparation, right? find solace in their own ability to be as good as they're going to be and accept the fact that they are maybe going through or have already gone through their Lance Armstrong crisis or as I like to call it their I'm not Lance Armstrong crisis, <laughs> which pretty much every serious bike rider goes through right around the age of 19.2 years old. Like, oh, crap, man. I'm not going to win Worlds this year. I'm not even on the national team. How am I going to buy that bumping Range Rover and <laughs> have that Aspen house? This is not going the way I thought it would. So that's a typical crisis. I know this well because I went through this crisis at the age of 19.25 or something thereabouts. Most bike racers, it happens. So got lost again. Uh-oh. Yeah. See what I'm saying? I'm distracting you. No, not at all. You're helping. Okay, good. This is me getting lost. You're talking about the different, the two camps of micro-adjusters, those that would lack, lack yes. confidence and those that blank. Yeah. So those micro-adjusters who are lacking faith in themselves might be served to turn inwards and find their own ability to be who they are and be okay with their path in the sport of cycling. That's what I'm suggesting. The other micro adjusters are people who are very sensitive to how they're applying power to the pedals. And this goes into a certain cycling neurotype. There are, there are neurotypes who are just wired to feel the, the way they make power. That'd be the best way I could describe it, how they're applying force to the pedals. Chris, you're clearly not on in this camp but there are riders who are constantly processing what it feels like to make power on the bike. And they're almost meditatively monitoring the pedal stroke in their head. And they could very quickly and easily describe to me, when I pedal, I'm doing this with this leg and that with that leg, but I feel that the left one does it better here and the right one doesn't make pedal power well at two o'clock or at 5.30, I can't drive through the bottom or, or whatever their particular description might be. Is this you? I've, I've are you played, somewhere in the middle? I played all these roles at different points. Okay. Yeah. So definitely went through a long period of time where I was this type of person, mm -hmm. where I was really focused on these nuance of making power in the pedal stroke. And I would dare say that I've progressed beyond that, although the meditative aspect of pedaling for me still exists um, on a, on a per-ride basis, for sure, at least part of the time. Uh, that's part of the reasons why I enjoy the sport. For me, it is meditative. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's, let's let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to give everyone my cliff notes on how to pedal a bike. And then we can deconstruct why I think that's the case. Let's do that. Because we've been talking for a while now, and I'm sure people are like, dude, get to the point. Dude, dude. get to the point. All right. Yes, sir. How do I pedal my friggin' bike? <laughs> One, I want you to push forward and down starting at 12 o'clock. Two, I want you to not focus on three and four o'clock because you are meant to run and walk and you're going to push down hard. The harder you go at three and four o'clock naturally, because that is the gate cycle. That's why we see a big pop in force right around that part of the pedal stroke. Let me just make sure everyone's on the same page. So we're looking at the clock, the, the crank set from the drive side, and we're superimposing a clock on top of it. 
So when your crank set is vertical, that's 12 o'clock. Right. When your crank set is horizontal, that's three o'clock. When the crank is at, at a vertical pointing down towards the ground, that would be six o'clock, which is not bottom dead center. Bottom dead center is when you're parallel to the seat tube, which would be about 530, which is the furthest reach you will have from the saddle. Mm. Some people get confused on that minor yes. nuance. And then at nine o'clock, when the crank is horizontal pointing back towards the rear hub, that's nine o'clock. So that's our complete pedal circle. The power phase I will define as from 12 o'clock when the crank is vertical pointing up towards the saddle all the way down to six o'clock when it's at the bottom. That is the power phase of the right side of the crank. We're gonna always refer to the clock face relative to the drive side of the bike. Yes. And you can mirror image that to the other side, the same concepts will apply. But to be clear, when I say three o'clock, I'm always referring to the right side pedal being horizontal just to establish our baselines. Very good. Point number three, I would like you to pull back, not up at 530 or bottom dead center. That's a crucial point. Pull back, not up. And I'll explain why that is. Point number four, let the other leg take over. What do I mean by that? That means that if we're focusing on the power phase of the right leg from 12 all the way down to six, at six o'clock, the right leg becomes passive and the left leg takes over on its corresponding power phase. And when that happens seamlessly, meaning the same moment the right leg becomes passive and the left leg becomes active when the cranks are vertical, then two halves make a whole. And one of the primary objectives of pedaling most of the time, but not always, is to make, is to eliminate dead spots at the top and bottom of the stroke. There are times when that doesn't apply, and I'll talk about that too. Can I jump in here with a question? Please. So perhaps I'm the, the a bad example because I sort of get on a bike, do this, and it just happens, right? But you're teaching people here that need to be thinking a bit more about pedaling technique to improve performance, maybe improve uh, the, their technique so that it reduces potential injury and so forth. I want to know how somebody goes from taking this instruction, applying it out on the road, thinking about these different steps to get to a point where they're not thinking about this anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. for me, if I had to be thinking about this constantly, that's A, going to sort of take away from the pleasure, yep. but also it's going to be a challenge to continue to do that for an entire ride. So yes. how, how much should somebody do this um, to practice it before it becomes more and more innate, mm -hmm. I guess, is my question. Good question. So a couple answers to that. One is that it depends a little bit on the athlete. If we have you, Chris, the high-level compensator, and things are going very well, you might play with us a little bit, but you might find it doesn't really serve you or change your cycling practice that much. And it could be that you're already pedaling this way. It could be that you're not. But either way, to a certain degree, there is a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, right. Not always. Right. In yeah. your case, I would argue there is. That said, I have some people who I've seen come in who say they have no problems. And I look at them on the bike and I, my jaw hits the floor because I'm thinking, how can you possibly be making power like this? In particular, if the spine and torso and hips are super, super unstable under load and that instability progresses as they add more load. Look, man, I, 
I've been doing this long enough to have a crystal ball to a certain degree and I can look into that crystal ball and say, there's going to be a problem in your future. I'm sure of it. We need to be proactive about this. I know you're, you're having no problems right now, but we need to look carefully at how you're pedaling and talk about it and look at your fit and make sure that we start to address this because the chances of you having problems is just so high that we've got to deal with it. And then sometimes when you get to that point, you unpack it further and the person you find that they glossed over the questions or that they go, oh yeah, now that you mentioned it, my back does really hurt. Mm. Any ride over an hour long. <laughs> Why didn't you mention that before? I don't know. I just forgot or I didn't think it mattered. It's just part of the routine now. Yes. It's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we all have fallen victim to the mindset of, of adopting the, well, this hurts, but it's part of being a tough person for the sport, part of adaptation or being an elite athlete. And really part of, one of the most critical aspects of being an elite athlete is discerning between the type of pain and discomfort that serves your training because you, your quads and glutes hurt because you went as hard as you could up a 30 minute steep climb mm -hmm. versus my lower back is twisted than not and my balls are asleep or I can't feel my lady parts because my saddle is like yeah. a fence post. Oof. Those are not constructive, mm -hmm. right? No one has to tolerate that. We have the technology. And so then it's time to dig further. So you have to discern which type of pain and discomfort you're tolerating or enduring during your training and workouts and races. So couple. So the midline would be that I recommend that if people want to investigate learning how to pedal a bike in a different way, the first place to do that is you have to change the motor engram, right? This A motor engram is it's a movement pattern that's ingrained in your system and it's been kind of grooved in over thousands of repetitions. In cycling's case, mm. tens of thousands of repetitions, yes. right? That's one reason why it can be challenging to change a pedal stroke because cycling is so repetitive. And you do a, an hour and a half bike ride at 90 RPM and you've already got thousands of revolutions and you add that over a few months and it's like, and also cycling is so locked into exactly the same range of motion, right? Clipless pedals, rigid carbon shoe, Saddle height doesn't change unless you are futzing with it or unless it slips in the seat post or unless it's a saddle with too much padding and the padding collapses. Let me start on that. So cycling ingrains these movement engrams very precisely. So it does require some effort to undo them. It doesn't mean it's undoable. The, one of the best ways to do that is with specific pedaling drills that I will talk about. And I'll talk about specific pedaling drills that are common that I do not like and why I don't like them. And then we'll also talk about the simple way really is to focus on the pedal stroke at the beginning of your ride, Chris, because then if you say, I'm going to give myself the first 20 minutes of dedicated attention to this pedal stroke, which sometimes means you might need to ride by yourself because as soon as you ride with your buddy and they're talking, you forget, right? You got to be engaged turn, in this, be engaged and turn inwards. And you say, okay, I'm only going to focus on this stroke and I'm going to develop, get the momentum of the habit going. Then, okay, then you go ride for an hour. And then at the end of your ride, check in and go, I'm going to think about this. Did that habit maintain its momentum or did I degenerate into my old typical pedal stroke? And that's how you can start to make momentum on that. That and with very specific focus drills. Very good. Those would be ways I would suggest it. Um, if you're a total dork like me, you can ride for five or six hours and pretty much always be thinking about your pedal stroke. This is a skill that I would not say everyone probably has, but I don't know because I'm not in everyone else's skull. But I'll say that I've learned to cultivate it over years of cycling. And it is the type of skill where I can set almost like a metronome in mind 
in motion in my mind and let it tick and it will go the entire ride. Uh, example, when I was training for the Masters World Hour record in 2018 at Boulder Valley Velodrome, Wednesdays were the days where I happened to have time to go out and train. So I'd go out and train midday. More often than not, it was howling wind, blazing hmm. hot, and there was no one else on the velodrome, which is fine by me because basically what I need to do is just go pummel myself in the pole lane for hour for long efforts. So I started out doing 40 lap efforts on my own. Well, there's no one there to help me. I'm not going to hire someone to stand out there for two hours while I go in circles. But I have to keep track of the laps. I don't really want to look at a head unit. You can do that on a track, but it becomes problematic. I want to focus on my rhythm and my effort. So I began counting. And the only way to count laps is to count out loud. So I got up to the point where I was doing four by 80. And I was counting out loud every single lap. And here's a little trick. If you count out loud and it actually comes out of your mouth and makes noise, you'll remember it one lap later. But if you count in your head, by the time you go down the back stretch and around turns three and four, yeah. you get to the start line, you're totally lost in another universe. It's incredible how it Yeah, works. I could see that. It's just like the difference between being in class and hearing the teacher say something and you go, oh, that's really interesting. I think I learned that. And you writing it down. The act of writing it down and making it a physicality helps weld it in your head. So just a little thing there. Um, I can begin to think about my pedal stroke during a long ride and it'll just go like a metronome the whole time. And I'll, it'll be an un, almost a subtext of my consciousness, but I can access it at any moment, but it's still going. And I bring that up only to illuminate that I think the human mind is capable of that. Something similar to that, despite the fact that I just quote unquote, get on the bike and pedal, I can still tap into what my legs are doing at any moment, you know, or, or feel that rhythm and, and engage with that. But it's not sitting there at the front of my consciousness the whole time. Mm, you're not completely disconnected. Yeah. That also probably plays into why you are a high level compensator, because I would suggest that people who are able to completely disassociate from the physical activity their bodies are doing on the one hand, that might enable them to push to very deep levels. On the other hand, it's going to allow them to disassociate so much that their body, the the mechanics of their pedal stroke can fall apart. They can also lose touch with their intuition on, oh, I, you know, I forgot to drink for an hour. And then right. suddenly, boom, my energy levels plummeted, fell off a cliff. Or I forgot to eat for an hour and same thing. Yeah. Energy levels just fall off a cliff and then they can't figure out how they got in such a big hole. You look at their bottles. Well... Both your bottles are full and it's 85 degrees out. We've been riding, you know, in yeah. zone three for a while. What, what's the deal? I don't know. I just didn't think about it. You no, probably... I, I would, I, I, I don't fall into that ever. I would say that there is an, always an awareness there. Cliff notes on how to pedal a bike. Point five was two legs make opposing force on the first half of the power phase. Or excuse me, on the first half of the pedal stroke, which is the power phase. And... Two subnotes on that, one of which I've already covered, but are really important, so I'm going to cover it again. Number one, the, the difference between pushing over the top and pulling over the top is really important. And this is a difference that is clearly illustrated for any of our audience who have used power cranks. If you've ridden on power cranks and you try to pull your leg up over the top, your hip flexors are annihilated in a matter of minutes, and there's only two ways to handle it. One is you go home and defeat or call an Uber uh, two is that you struggle like crazy and your hip flexors get stronger and stronger and stronger until you pull the pedal over the top of the stroke and you adapt to that technique, which I would argue is actually a useless adaptation. 
The second, for most, for most riders, it depends a little bit on the rider, but most generally speaking, it's not an adaptation we care about for cycling performance. The second way to do it is to push over the top, starting as soon as you can. That's contingent on your bike being set up correctly, but it is a far more sustainable and powerful way to use power cranks. And when you use this technique where the right leg, for example, pushes over the top from 12-1-2 and then down at 3-4 and then begins to pull back at bottom dead center around 5-30 and 6 and then becomes passive, but the left leg takes over simultaneously, then you end up with two halves make a whole, which is a complete pedal stroke. And the two legs deliver smooth and efficient power working in opposition to each other, not unlike the hands of a sailor using a hand crank to mm. move the sail on a sailboat race. To yes. use terminology, which I'm not very familiar with. <laughs> Booms, bows, aft. I don't know. Starboard. Yeah, port. that. Right. Poop deck. Poop deck. <laughs> We're not sailors. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to anyone who knows that word and we just butchered all your all your terminology. So that's those are my cliff notes on how to pedal a bike. What am I talking about? Why do I think that's important? Now we can we can rewind a bit and unpack. So do that. Let's begin at the beginning of the pedal stroke, the beginning of the power phase, which is at 12 o'clock. So when we are at 12 o'clock, again to remind you, that's when the right crank is vertical, straight up and down, pointing up towards the saddle, and we're pushing forward and down. In order to make that happen the saddle has to be back far enough behind the bottom bracket. And this is the first unpopular opinion that I will have in the world of cycling, or maybe I should say controversial opinion because there's a big movement in bike fitting right now to push the saddle forward for a bunch of reasons. And I'll, I'll talk about why I think that is. But fundamentally, this is all part of my logic for describing how people should pedal a bike is based on the rule I learned from Jess Elliott, which is which she learned from, I think, Cal Dietz, if I remember correctly, which is joint angle determines muscle function or dictates muscle function. And I would like to edit that rule to say joint angle indicates muscle function because a joint angle doesn't actually tell the muscle what to do. It tells us what the muscle's doing. So when I'm fitting, I don't need uh, electrodes hooked up to a muscle to see if it's firing. I can do two things. One is understanding the body very simplistically as a system of pulleys and levers, which is, by the way, a reductionist way of looking at pedaling and not always the way we want to think about things, but it can serve to illustrate some examples. It can also tell us useful things about how muscles are firing. And two is I can palpate the muscle. So when the bike's in the trainer and I squeeze the rear brake and lock the wheel, I can have a rider push down on the crank at one o'clock, at two o'clock, at three o'clock, and I can feel which muscles are firing. That's just a static snapshot of what muscles are capable of pushing down. So if you wanna see this point, put your bike in a trainer, make sure it's level, sit on the saddle, hold your rear brake. It can't be a smart trainer, sorry, you've gotta have an actual wheel in there. So that already takes out half of our audience at least. But anyway, use a toe strap or something, I don't know. Don't crush your chain stays. So when you hold the rear brake down and the cranks at three o'clock, you can push on that pedal and you can also palpate your own muscle by right. tapping on it and feeling which muscles are tense and which ones aren't. 
This is a really poor man's way of looking at what's firing and what isn't. Now take the crank up to vertical at 12 o'clock. The first thing you'll notice is that if your saddle's really far forward, you're going to, by necessity, end up pointing your toe down. That is called plantar flexion, right? Dorsiflexion is when you point your toe up towards the knee. And just so I can use these anatomical terms quickly and easily, I'll remind everyone that the way to remember dorsiflexion versus plantar flexion is what is the fin on top of a shark called? A dorsal fin. Exactly. So whenever your foot points up like a dorsal fin, that is dorsiflexion. Now you'll never forget it. So plantar flexion is the opposite when you point your toes away from your knee. So when an athlete is at, when an athlete's foot is at 12 o'clock, we have to have some dorsiflexion to the foot, meaning it's going to be close to flat in order to push forward and down using quads and glutes with power, like you're stepping down with the heel. That's the cue I use, step down with the heel. The only way to do that is if your saddle's far enough back behind the bottom bracket. If your saddle's really forward over the bottom bracket, which is a popular way for a lot of fitters to set up a bike right now, the only way for you to apply power to the, to the pedal at 12 o'clock will be to kick forward like you're kicking a soccer ball with your toe. Because mm. as soon as you bring your butt forward over the bottom bracket or towards the handlebars, your foot's going to drop toe down, heel up. And that is not a powerful way to deliver force there. Two, two questions. Yes. First, when you say you have to move your saddle back behind the bottom bracket, how, how much? Right. right. Yeah. Good question. A lot of people use knee over pedal spindle or the plumb line from the old knee uh, to determine saddle offset. And they would do that with the crank at three o'clock horizontal. And they would drop a plumb line from either the front of the knee down to the front of the axle or from the behind the patellar to the center of the axle. And there's a few other little variations in there. I don't follow that rule strictly. Uh, if you want to check out why, there's a really old cool article written by Keith Bontrager called The Myth of Cops, K-O-P-S, which is knee over pedal spindle. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And that article explains why we don't really find that to be a relevant metric because Keith's argument is that as the bike is horizontal or level, when the plumb is dropped, then you get that tidy relationship. But what happens when you go uphill and downhill? And he also points out that there's no real reason for that. This is just an old Italian wives tale about bike fitting that happens to mostly kind of work. But really what we want to do is place the center of gravity over the bottom bracket. That's Keith's argument. And he actually claims he has a way to calculate a rider's center of gravity and find out when it is placed over the bottom bracket. Question number two. I don't actually use that method, by the way. Okay. I, I base saddle offset more on pedaling style demands the event length of the femur. Well, that was my, that was my question. Number two, yep. what if I have really short femurs, right? Then you wouldn't need as much saddle offset to still have dorsiflexion at 12 o'clock and get proper power delivery at the start of the power phase. You can, um, Bernardi nose book has a really cool table that details actually the uh, femur to tibia ratio. And you can measure that. I did this when I was a junior. How dorky is this? You can measure your femur, measure your tibia based off his method, off his methods and figure out what the ratio is and then figure out where you are on that chart. And he has some suggested saddle offsets based on that. And I'm pretty much on that chart today. 
Wow. Uh, not because I adhered to that chart, but after doing everything under the sun from way too far back to way too far forward and trying it all, this is where I've landed and found it to be the most efficient position for me. Interesting. Do you have that book? You must have that book. Oh, yeah. It's on my, it's on my shelf in the Fit Studio. Very good. For sure. It's a good basic. Um, it's, filled, it's just like a lot of old school books. I mean, this book was probably published in 68 or 70 or somewhere in there. I don't know. Maybe it was a little later than that. No, it probably was. It was probably more like late 70s. But just like all these books, it's got some good fundamentals in it. Lamont's book has some good fitting fundamentals in it and some good training fundamentals in it, to be honest. But you got to take those and expand them. I, you know, I like to tell people I'm not yeah. old school. I'm not new school. I'm all school. Like I take it all in and adapt it, leave behind the, the junk and the stuff we've learned to move past. But that doesn't mean every concept that's an old one gets abolished just because it's old. Yeah. You like to sift. Yes. Discern. Discern. Very good. So two things that are needed when we have this saddle offset behind the bottom bracket. And I haven't answered your question yet about how much is too much, but I will. But two things that are needed, and this is where people get hung up. One is you need the ability to have good dorsiflexion. You need the ability to have good ankle flexion in order to generate power at 12 o'clock. And I'll explain why I think we need that power there first uh, in a moment. But the second thing is, as you push the saddle further back behind the bottom bracket, here it comes. This is, this is the controversial moment. We make the angle between the femur and the torso more acute or tighter at the top of the pelvis stroke. <laughs> Tell us why this is controversial. Well, right now there's a big movement to eliminate the tightness of the hip angle in fitting, especially in time trial fitting and in triathlon world. Triathlon fits are... A whole other ballpark, but I'll, I'll, I think they're influencing bicycle fit on the whole. And I think this is a mistake for a bunch of reasons. So here's the, the potentially controversial opinion part. But I think one reason that people are looking to avoid the really acute angle between the femur and the torso at the top of the pedal stroke is because we've had a rash of elite athletes who've experienced arterial hmm. iliac cardiac artery uh, endofibrosis endofibrosis or impingement at yes. the top of the stroke right so this is a, a situation where blood flow is being uh, disrupted to the leg under high pressuring loads when the rider is in that low tucked position meaning the torso is relatively horizontal and then the femur is coming up close to that that torso and that makes sense basically you're kinking the artery over and over and yep. over again. And so the artery starts to either form scar tissue or become obstructed from, or it can probably even be obstructed from the muscle mass you're gaining if you're a really muscular rider, depending on the placement of the artery and some other, some other anatomical variations. So I think that's one reason. And clearly in those cases, we might have to make exceptions to this rule, but we also have to understand that those, those, changes will come potentially at a compromise to the rider's function or power. Like, so just to rewind from a 30,000 foot view, these recommendations are basic recommendations. They're philosophies I take into the fit lab, but my number one rule in fitting is there are no rules in fitting. Every rider is unique or here it comes, Jenna. God is a novelty generator. So she's heard me say that one like 50,000 times and I'll probably say it 50,000 more because it's just, it's, it's the pretty much the only rule I follow in any endeavor I take, whether it's fitting or coaching or any discussion with anyone. Everyone's unique and we're all unique expressions of God's consciousness to get philosophical for a moment. 
So when we, when we take these rules and we lay them as a template for a fit, those rules can or are frequently broken or modified based on the needs of the individual rider. Like you said, Chris, what if somebody has really short femurs? The other thing applies, the other example that applies is when someone's really uh, has very short legs, very short femurs, a long torso, and they're very muscular build. So they've got a big kind of uh, boxy rib cage, mm -hmm. you know? I'm not even talking about someone who's overweight. I'm just talking about someone who's yeah. just sort of stocky in build, mm -hmm. and they have very muscular thighs. Well, we're going to clearly have problems compressing that angle between the torso and the femur. What's the magic solution? Shorter cranks. <laughs> he said shorter cranks. So when, so that allows us to keep, to maintain that saddle offset and that saddle offset is really important to maintain for a few reasons. Number one is when the saddle is the proper platform, we support more of the weight of the torso on the saddle and less on the arms and shoulders. So we're, t we're talking about horizontalizing the torso. If you want to do a home experiment to figure out what I'm talking about, just stand upright with perfect posture and then hinge forward at the hip. When you hinge forward at the hip, don't let your legs move. How far forward can you bend until you start to fall over and fall on your face? Not that far. Maybe your torso gets to, I don't know, 20, 30 degrees or something like that, depending on how strong your lower back musculature is. But eventually your center of gravity will go so far forward, you'll just fall on your face. In order to make a bike handle well or a cyclist be arrow, we have to horizontalize the torso, move it more towards a horizontal orientation, less of a vertical orientation. That means hip hinging. So as we hinge at the hip, more of the weight, the center of gravity shifts forward to avoid bearing the weight of that torso being horizontalized and bearing the weight on the shoulders and arms, we offset it by pushing the weight back on the saddle and supporting it on the saddle so that the, the structure, the weight of the torso can be supported by the bicycle. Again, this is what makes the bike so efficient, is the bike carries the load. This is also one of the big differences between running and cycling. The cyclist is, the weight of the, of the athlete is primarily borne by the apparatus. That's why cycling is so much less destructive to the joints, among other things, and you're more efficient on a bike. So, that's one aspect. Why do we want to begin to apply power at 12 o'clock? The answer is simple. We already decided, we already conclusively proved yeah. <laughs> that people are meant to run and walk and that means making downforce. So if we're good at making downforce, okay, Chris, what happens when we take a novice rider and we give them a super fast road bike and we tell them to go ride up to Jamestown and you're riding behind them, what do you see? How are they pedaling? What's a common... Hmm. Their cadence is probably all over the place. They're pedaling fast at times, slow at times, smashing, grinding away. You know, they're, it's not very, it doesn't have a lot of souplesse. There's not right. smoothness to it. Right. Yep. And what else would you see? What would you notice maybe most likely expect to see in the upper body? Uh, there's a lot of movement lot in of the movement. upper body. A lot of yeah. rocking of the shoulders, yeah. maybe, yep. maybe of the hips, yep. depending on how the fit was and yep. whatever. Noodly. Yeah. So the lack of suplesse is the rider, the new rider taking that walking gait, that central pattern generator fire, firing pattern of left, right, and just smashing it onto pedals. And what you get when you see that is, what you see when you do that is 
a big push at about three o'clock when the cranks are horizontal. That sort of matches up with where we would make, start to make force on the ground if we were running or walking. And then we push down through even past six o'clock sometimes. It's more like they're on a, uh, one of those step machines. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking a step machine or as if you were hiking uphill. That's how people tend to ride a bike at first. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. What I'm arguing is that we want to refine that process. And how do we want to refine that process? Well, since human beings are good at running and walking and we're good at making downforce, let's use the downstroke for all it's worth. Instead of just starting at three o'clock, let's start at 12. Let's use the entire power phase of the stroke from 12 all the way down to six. That's where we're good. What we're not as good at is pulling up or pulling up and back across the top from nine, 10, 11, 12. Those are natural dead spots. And by focusing on those, what we do is rob the stroke of potential power in other areas. And there's quite a bit of science to support this. I can drop in some links to a few studies if you're so inclined, but to be honest, I'll say something else that's controversial. I don't necessarily, I read the science and I acknowledge the science on this, but after 35 years, I don't need a double blind scientific study with 12 you know, college kids showing me that when they yanked hard on the pedal at nine o'clock, their efficiency didn't improve. Hmm. Because I figured this out on my own through three and a half decades of screwing around with cleat position and saddle height and all kinds of other things. I've just figured it out. And I've also generalized it enough to other riders and spoken to them about it. So it's not only an N of one, it's, we'll say, a global intuition and understanding. I know that's a lofty statement. There are, I don't doubt it. There are left brain people out there who will not like that. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> so we have our beginning of our pedal stroke at 12 o'clock and we are approaching this 12 o'clock position, ideally with a flat or nearly flat foot, because if we approach it toe down, we're going to be kicking a soccer ball through the toe of our shoe. And that's not a strong way to deliver power. We want to push down using the heel. Then we're going to follow the pedal stroke down to one o'clock where we're pushing down and forward and down two o'clock where we're pushing down and forward three o'clock where we're pretty much pushing straight down. There are two ways an athlete can make force in a circle, either radial or tangential. What do I mean by that? Okay. So when the cranks at three o'clock tangential force would be pushing straight down or perpendicular to the crank arm. In fact, tangential force is always on the circumference of the circle, no matter where the crank is oriented. So that means at six o'clock pointing straight down, your force would be pulling straight back. At nine o'clock, it would be pointing straight up and at 12 o'clock would be pointing straight forward. Radial force is not desirable to be made during a pedal stroke at all because it doesn't drive the pedal. Example, when your bike's in the trainer, Put your crank straight down on the right side and push down parallel to the crank as hard as you can. You're pushing a lot, but does the pedal move? Does this help the bike move forward at all? No. All you're kind of doing is flexing the pedal and the spindle and the crank and the bottom bracket a little bit. At nine o'clock, if you were to push straight backwards towards your derailleur, that wouldn't help the bike go forward. At 12 o'clock, if you pulled straight up, that wouldn't help the pedal. And at three o'clock, if you kicked straight forward, none of those would help. So we want to minimize radial force and maximize tangential. So I would suggest that superficially on paper, when, when the goal might seem to be to make round circles, humans aren't good at making round circles. The second confounding variable I'll point out when people look at pedal studies, which there are a few of out there, and force delivery studies, again, 
Unless you're a scuba diver, we forget about gravity. Legs weigh a lot. Each leg weighs 15, 20 kilograms, depending on how big you are. That's a lot of weight falling in space on the power phase of the crank. So whenever we're looking at force pedals, the force of the that's being generated into the force measuring device, the pedal, isn't only muscular force. It's also the weight of the leg and the shoe and the sock and everything falling onto that platform, even the pedal and the cleat. So that tells us that there's more force going into the downstroke than is muscularly produced alone, but it still doesn't detract from the fact that humans are primarily meant to push down. The only way we can pull up and across the top is by using knee flexors and hip flexors. The hamstring is meant to flex the hip powerfully and flex the knee weakly, not as strong. What you're saying is take advantage of your big muscles, forget about the small muscles. They might add a little bit, but it's not worth it. So you're making, instead of full circles, you're making half moons with either side to make a whole moon. Correct. Um, And within that arc, there's places where it's advantageous to push really hard and others where it's advantageous to ease up a little bit. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm. Not ease up, but not push so forcefully. Well, this is how this gets into the philosophy a bit. I would say that depends a bit on what type of cadence you're under, what type of, so, and therefore what type of torque you're producing and also your proximity to maximum load, which is relative to duration. So complex way of saying it depends kind of on how hard you're going and whether you're climbing or not. Yeah. Um, But I would say the general philosophy should be to emphasize the, what I call the horizontal aspects of the pedal stroke. That is the parts from 12 and one to two and the parts from five to 530 to six or the pushing forward and down across the top and the pulling back at the bottom. Why do I not ask you to emphasize three and four? Because that is the part that is in your central pattern generator. That's the that's, part that's hardwired. Yeah, that's so going to happen no matter go, what. Yep. That's going to happen on its own. So how you actually smooth the pedal stroke and minimize dead spots is by emphasizing those kind of air quotes, horizontal parts of the pedal stroke. Why do we care? We care because when you're climbing on a steep climb, if you have a big old fat dead spot at the top of your stroke and the bottom of your stroke, the bike will accelerate every pedal stroke. It will surge forward and then slow down and surge forward and slow down on every stroke. And then it is an incredibly inefficient way to pedal up a long steep climb. We, I'm from Florida. I don't care. Hmm. All my roads are flat. You still care. You still care because even though inertia camouflages dead spots and flat roads camouflage dead spots, you still don't want a massive dead spot in your pedal stroke because the same problem applies. And where that's going to get magnified is in solo longer efforts. You're in your 100 mile pancake flat Houston or Florida road race and the brake gets away and you're trying to bridge across solo and you're time traveling for 10, 15 minutes with constant pressure, when the bike is surging, you will not be as fast, even though you may not notice that surge. This is one of the confounding variables about cycling. Because the machine is so efficient, you can have a rider that has pretty atrocious pedaling technique, and they may not even know it. If you have horrible technique when you're swimming, you'll drown. If you have crappy technique when you're cross-country skiing, you'll just fall over. It's Mm -hmm. way too balance intensive. Mm -hmm. If you have a uh, atrocious technique when you're running, you'll get injured in a very short period of time. Cycling is 
bless cycling, bless you cycling. It's so much more tolerant of these athletes who are just stabbing at the pedals, murdering the crank set with their atrocious technique or fit or combination thereof. But they can still go out with a $10,000 TT bike and go pretty fast at a local TT if they're aerobically relatively well-conditioned or trained. So cycling is a sport that camouflages all that to a certain degree, unless you're paying attention and you can see the cues. So have we covered why I think that we should push the saddle back to a degree? I want to, yes. I want to talk about why people say you should, it should come forward. So in the world of triathlon, frequently, especially draft legal triathlon, but even arguably non-draft legal triathlon, whatever that's called, normal triathlon, I don't know. The outcome of the race is frequently dictated by the run. Not always, but very commonly. You hear about people who ride this exceptional bike segment and then they explode on the run and they get passed. In draft legal, you're basically just trying to come out of the water with the lead group or close enough and then you're trying to stay with the lead group or close enough during the bike most of the time. And then the run sorts out the placings, right? So it is natural for a, a triathlon coach and an athlete to emphasize the run is the most important part of the triathlon. I understand that. I still philosophically disagree though with the idea that we should turn cycling into running, which I think some fitters are really trying to do. And from what I've understood from the bits of pieces I've read from triathlon articles and forums I've been on, etc., a lot of triathletes are struggling with the cycling aspect, especially being in the aero bars on longer, longer duration events. In particular, their hamstrings tend to flip out a little bit. And so the solution to this is to push the saddle forward to produce less hip flexion. And it's also to raise the saddle to turn the bike pedaling stroke more into triple extension, which I'm not a fan of. What is triple extension? Triple extension is all three joints extend at the same time. That's the hip, the knee, and the ankle. So you would use triple extension, for example, in uh, shooting a basketball, right? Or jumping up to touch, uh, to kill a fly on the ceiling that was as high as you could possibly jump. Mm -hmm. You would crouch down and explode and all three joints would extend at once. And that's using all the leg musculature in one shot. The challenge there, the reason that doesn't work as well on bicycles is that it doesn't, it shortchanges the ability of the hamstring to drive through the bottom of the stroke and it creates a dead spot at the bottom of the stroke. We naturally have one dead spot at the top of our pedal stroke. Starts around 9.30 and goes up to 12, assuming you are trained to start your power phase at 12. If your saddle's too far forward, then you have to wait until the foot drops down into dorsiflexion, which takes usually through one or two o'clock. But because the hip musculature doesn't change, even though we've rotated the athlete forward, we're still in gravity, so the leg is really not great at unweighting its own weight and applying a positive force to the pedal from 10, 11, 12. So all we do is take the dead spot and we extend it from 10 all the way to two. And the remarkable thing about elite athletes is they will solve the equation. So when they're climbing next to each other up a steep climb and they feel the bike surging and they feel a weak point in the pedal stroke, they feel the dead spot because you'll, you'll notice your bike starts to lose a tiny bit of ground next to the rider next to you, even in every pedal stroke. Riders will intuit this, even if it's not conscious they'll start to punch harder at three o'clock. So 
because your bike mechanically doesn't allow you to start to actualize pedaling at 12 o'clock when the saddle's too far forward, you'll punch harder at three. Now you've created this egg-shaped pedal stroke. And if your saddle's too high and you can't drive through the bottom with hamstring by pulling back, then at nine o'clock you'll sense that same sensation. So you'll start to yank up. Is this why people on climbs, steeper climbs, if they remain seated, will often scooch very far forward onto the nose of their saddle to, to it be? It can be. Yeah, yeah it depends. Um, <clears throat> that's a great question. Some riders will push back in their saddles on steep climbs. And this is more of a drive to start the power phase at 12 o'clock and engage more glute. When they come forward, it's likely because their saddle is too high and too far forward already. And this is a weird negative feedback loop in the world of cycling. Sometimes when your saddle's too high and forward, you would think, well, if it's too forward and I'm gonna make better power by driving back in the saddle, assuming you believe all the stuff I just talked about. Instead of driving back in the saddle and starting to engage more glute, it's like a, a negative vortex of spiraling yuckiness where you end up further <laughs> off the mark. Wow. Yeah. You don't want that. You don't want that. So people, if you're coming forward in the saddle on steep climbs, your technique and your fit are probably well off the mark, I would say, for a bunch of reasons. Hmm. So time to dig if that's the case. If you're pushing further back in the saddle on steep climbs, that suggests that your saddle actually should be a little further back and you might need to improve your hip hinge and possibly look at nose angle. Just some very armchair yeah. generalized. I know that was a very, that's a, that's a, yeah. one of those questions that is hard to fully answer without knowing all the variables. Of course. And this is why I'm a bike fitter because there's a million variables that goes in every fit, but that can, let's just give people enough information to get really lost on their own. Hmm. So this is a big reason why I think that we need not to push the saddle forward in the world of triathlon. I mean, if I was a triathlon coach, which I'm not, to be fair, I would look at the best runners, the best swimmers, and the best cyclists in the world, and I would train my athlete in accordance with those methods. And I don't just mean the best, meaning the ones that are winning. I mean the ones that are mechanically and functionally the best. And I would, I would reverse engineer the methods. This would more than triple my workload, which is one of several reasons why I'm not a triathlon coach. But then I would train my athletes to be proficient in each of those. And in cycling, one of the basic demands of the event, see episode cycling and alignment number, whatever it is, about the fundamentals of the sport, hip hinging is a fundamental need. It's a fundamental requirement of cycling, hinging at the hip with proper form and making power in that hip hinged position. That is a basic. So when we try to skirt around that by shoving the saddle forward, it's the wrong answer to the problem in my opinion. The way to do it is one, train the rider to be able to handle a hip hinge better within to the best of their ability and two, shorten the cranks if needed. There is a mountain of evidence out there. Go look at Jim Martin's work for a starting point. I'll link two other good articles on the show notes about why going to a shorter crank rarely, very rarely takes a rider's performance down, but many reasons why going to a longer crank impedes performance. Uh, Cliff Notes version, the only riders who are justified in pushing the envelope on crank length and going longer are riders who are one, professionals, and two, trying to win the Vuelta. Because the Vuelta every year has about half a dozen finishes on mountaintops that are ridiculously steep. And the only scenario where you're going to go faster with a longer crank pretty much hands down is when you are one, at maximum pace, two, out of gears, and three, sharing time in and out of the saddle. 
at that moment, because your torque is maximum, your cadence is low, and you can't shift, you can't make your gear any easier, at that moment, the longer crank you have, pretty much the faster you're gonna go for most riders. But most riders will suffer a decrease in performance if they have to carry that long crank arm around the rest of the year in all the criteriums and flat stages and training rides they have to do. The longer the crank is, the more hip and pelvic stability are challenged. The longer the crank arm is, the more difficult it becomes to make high levels of force. Don't forget, when you increase your crank arm even two and a half millimeters in length, in order to maintain power, foot speed has to increase, not stay the same. The old logic that, oh, the longer the lever is, the easier it is for me to push the gear, that's forgetting that we're making pedal in a, we're making force in a circle. It's also neglecting to recognize the fact that as a rider approaches maximum force, asking them to make it with increased foot speed is an added demand. So every time you add crank length on there, you're not just, you have to keep, it's like triple down, tripling down on the demands of the event or the, the demands of power production because you have to maintain the same amount of force with a greater foot speed over a greater range. That's like asking you to squat deeper and more quickly with the same amount of weight. That's what you're doing effectively. And then saying that's gonna get you more power, that makes no sense whatsoever. So more often than not, when we shorten crank length, we make gains for riders. There's a handful of really old school riders who cannot get their heads wrapped around that and I've had them switch to shorter cranks and they've had, it's been a failed go. Most of those people are riders who've been doing it for three decades plus. I also think that fiber muscle type plays a role into it, but there's, there's a certain old dog new tricks kind of equation there to a degree. But for the most part, I've, I've had a lot of riders switch to shorter cranks. And for the most part, I would say 90% have been great success. Okay. So what about the fact that you can move the cleat under the foot as well? So cleat for, for and aft, I use, as a method for that, I use the bony landmarks of the foot, the metatarsal heads. Generally speaking, as the cleat moves towards the toe, we lengthen the length of the third lever in the equation. So think about the body, again, simplistically, reductionistically, as a system of pulleys and levers. We have three levers that are applying power to the pedal. We have the length of the femur, the length of the tibia, and the length of the foot. The femur is mostly, uh, sorry, the femur goes between horizontal and vertical, depending on where you are in the pedal stroke. The tibia is mostly vertical, and the foot should be mostly horizontal, unless you're inkling like crazy. Ankling, by the way, is an ancient relic and should be done away with. I want you to pedal with mostly a flat foot during the entire pedal stroke. Thank you. So as we increase the lever arm of the third lever, that's the foot, we well, we would increase that by changing cleat offset, right? So think about it this way. Think about it from the back of your ankle, your Achilles, to the center of the pedal axle. That's the length of that lever, simplistically for the point of discussion. So as we move that cleat forward towards the toe, that lever gets longer. As we move it back towards the heel, that lever gets shorter. There are pros and cons to both of these. If we move the lever all the way back to under the, the head, the, the talus, then that's called midfoot cleat position. And what that does is basically remove the third lever from the equation. This is an extreme cleat position that was brought about by people who were doing really super long distance events like Perry, 
uh, Perry Brest Paris. Yeah. Thank you. Or the three volcano sprint I was talking about. Or like we're talking like 1,000, 2,000, 3K, 1,000 K bike races, ramp, stuff like that. Yeah. And what riders were experiencing was extreme forefoot pressure, which more often than not was probably due to poorly fitting shoes or just excessive insane volume or lack of proper footbeds and arch support or any number of other reasons, maybe some medical conditions. And so they wanted to move the axle away from that ball of the foot to relieve the pressure. Uh, or people were experiencing fatigue or chronic Achilles problems, fatigue in the caps specifically, because as the, the cleat moves towards the toes, think about it. You push down on that, on that rigid cycling shoe, even if it's a carbon sole, that's going to put more stress on the ankle joint. And in order to stabilize that joint, you're going to have to use the calf more and it's going to put more force in the Achilles. So if you're a rider who's having chronic Achilles program problems, again, armchair fitting, 30,000 foot view, one thing you might consider is moving your cleats back a little bit. Reducing that leverage. Reducing that lever arm. But that lever arm gives us something also. When we push the cleat out further towards the toe, or really I'll say towards the ball of the foot, we don't really, I'm using the toe as a marker. We never go past the ball of the foot really anymore, even for track sprinters. When we push that cleat further out and give a longer lever, what happens is you get this magic moment of super high zingy torque right at three o'clock, right during the peak of the power phase, three to four o'clock. So that's when that femur is pretty horizontal and that tibia is right over that axle. And then that little foot lever just gives you this pop. Mm -hmm. And that pop is useful in any events where we have lots of accelerations, like a cyclocross race or a criterium where you're jumping out of corners or a hard group ride where you're pulling through in a group of five or six riders and you're really stepping on the gas to get around the guy in front of you just for five or six seconds in the wind. And then you're waiting until the next guy comes around you or you're surging over a short climb. So in events with a lot of acceleration, when we have the cleat, you know, as a general general marker near the ball of the foot, we get that lever length. In longer events that are more acceler uh, less acceleration-based and more steady-state-based, we start to move the cleat further back. For the purposes of most conventional fits, we use the metatarsal heads as that range. So when you put a, a line down the center of the foot, the sole of the foot, looking at the foot vertically, looking down at your own foot on the floor, draw a line down the middle of the foot, then draw a line through the metatarsal heads. The first metatarsal head is the ball of the big toe. The fifth metatarsal head is the ball of the pinky toe. If you draw a line through those metatarsal heads, it will not be perpendicular to the center line of the foot. It will be angled. And the first metatarsal head will be further forward than the fifth. Unless you have a weird shaped foot. Unless you have a weird shaped foot. Well, some people's feet are pretty square, but there's almost always at least a little bit of angle to them. Yeah. But that's a good point. Yeah. And so what we want to do is put the axle somewhere between the first and the fifth metatarsal. The closer to the fifth it is, the shorter we're making that lever. The closer towards the first it is, the longer we're making that lever. Old school neutral used to be to put the axle right under the first metatarsal. Most fitters agree that that's not really ideal anymore. We want to be around 8, 10, 12 mils behind that first metatarsal in most cases. And in some cases, we might bump it further back. So there is a relationship between saddle offset and cleat offset. If you are riding in a pretty forward position in terms of saddle offset behind the bottom bracket, and your cleats are set up old school neutral with the axle right under the ball of the foot when the foot is horizontal, and you push your saddle way far back, it's going to feel really awkward. 
because when you go to push down at three o'clock, that foot's going to drop. The heel's going to drop too much. You're going to have too much ankle in it. So there's a relationship between those two parameters. As we push the saddle further back, frequently, not always, but frequently we want to push the cleats a little further back. If on the other hand, the saddle's too far back, which is unusual, but possible, then we might push the, the saddle forward. We might, if the cleats are slammed all the way back, there's a possibility we might push them forward. But I always respect the bony anatomy of the foot in that equation and also the rider's pedaling style. Depends on if they're slapping the heel down at three o'clock, depends if they're um, pedaling what I call ballet style. If their toes are pointed all the way through the power phase, then there's a good chance their cleats are really too far forward and they're trying to use the calf to stabilize the foot and drive into the, into the shoe or into the, the crank to get power. And chances are they're driving their toes into the end of the shoe and they're gonna have all kinds of problems. So that's not really an optimal solution or an ideal scenario at all. Does that sort of answer the question? of? How? I think it gets at the complexity of all of this. I mean, uh, yeah. we've been going on and on now for a while, but all of these things are interrelated. Saddle with cleat, this joint with that joint. I mean, it's so, it, it's very, very complex, you know? Um, maybe at this point, it's time to tell people some drills that they can use to try to improve things so they not having to think about all of this so much. They can totally. just go out and practice. Yeah. It's about practice, right? Yes. Good point. So assuming that your saddle is far enough back to where you can initiate the power phase at 12 o'clock when the crank is vertical and your saddle is low enough, other another unpopular opinion, that you can drive through the bottom of the stroke at bottom dead center which is when the crank's at 5.30 with a flat foot and activate hamstring. Assuming those two things are true, then you can go out and do some, some drills. People always ask me or commonly ask me if I like one-legged pedaling drills. I'm not really a big fan of those because the leg weighs so much. Legs are heavy. So when we put the bike in a trainer, or you can do this outdoors too, but if we put the bike in a trainer, you clip out of one foot and you rest it on your trainer or let it dangle, whatever, and you pedal with the other leg, what happens is the weight of the leg on the downstroke makes a big vroom in the sound of the trainer because you've got all this weight falling. And then your goal then is to get complete a pedal stroke. You've got to unweight the leg sufficiently. So that encourages you to yank up with hamstring at nine o'clock. That's not really ideal because if you pull up with hamstring at nine o'clock, that's going to pull your foot into plantar flexion, toe down, heel up. Then by the time you come around to the power phase, you're not set up to start pushing down with the heel at 12. You're at a disadvantage because your foot is pointed toe down. So I, that's one reason, in addition to all the science that shows that when you pull up at nine o'clock with hamstrings, you do not gain efficiency. All you do is rob yourself of peak power and your global efficiency does not increase. In addition to those studies, it sets up a poor power phase. So you're kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're, you're trying to do one thing at the expense of what your strength is, which because you are a human and you're good at pushing down, you're taking away from your 12 o'clock. So, so when we do one-legged pedaling drills, first of all, we're fostering bad habits. But secondly, then, okay, so secondly, we're, we're so far removed from natural pedaling because we've made it one leg that we're not really doing anything constructive other than training the hip flexors. And if you want to train the hip flexors, just get on a stability ball and do some stability ball pikes. 
that's a far more effective way to train hip flexors. Most cyclists do not need to train their hip flexors. They're tight and too strong already. They need to be stretched in most cases. Wormhole. So when we come around at 10, 11, 12, and the toe is pointed down and you're yanking hard up with iliopsoas and, and iliacus and maybe rec fem to close that hip to get the pedal stroke, to get the weight of the leg over the top of the dead spot, and then as soon as you get to 12, you just let it flop because you're tired. How is that training us to do anything that's useful in the context of pedaling? It's not. So unless with the ca possible caveat that if you did one-legged drills very, very carefully and specifically, which I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, I, let's just say on the whole, I think they're pretty useless, to be honest. Oh, at best case scenario. Worst case is they're kind of fostering bad habits. Mm. What I prefer is a drill I call dead legs or dead legged pedaling drills. In order to do this, you need a climb ideally of about eight to 10 minutes in length, moderate grade, we'll say five to 7%. And what you're gonna do, you can use a power meter and heart rate and all that stuff, but you don't even need it necessarily. What you need is some markers like a crosswalk at the bottom and a mailbox at the top or a driveway and a driveway, whatever you wanna use. Just use the same markers for each interval. And what you're gonna do is ride intervals on this climb up and down, up and down. You're gonna use the descent for recovery and the uphill of the effort. First, start out doing a normal, we'll call it a zone three tempo effort. Just get loose. Maybe it's eight minutes long and your power is whatever X percentage of your FTP, blah, blah, blah. Flip around, go back down. Then you're gonna do effort one. If we wanna be correct in terms of sciencey stuff, you'll do the first effort with the left leg because the left is always first. I'm not sure why. So that means you're going to only use your left leg actively for this entire effort. Your right leg is going to be, air quotes, dead or passive. You're just going to let it- Still clipped in though. Still clipped in. That The advantage there is that the right leg is falling on the pedal. So you're not, you still have the, you still have some light downforce from the leg falling, but you're not pushing, you're not pulling, you're not doing anything with the right leg. This will take some pretty intense concentration because it, as soon as it gets hard, you're gonna to wanna to use that right leg. Right. Also, this will highlight a big problem with one left-sided only power meter, power measuring devices or power estimators as I like to call them. <laughs> because you're not gonna be able to see useful data as you go from right to left leg, right to left leg. You'll see data, but it's gonna be super skewed. This might actually teach you something about why these devices have some pretty serious limitations. But this is also why we use our driveway to driveway metric. You can still use speed, time, and heart rate and get perfectly comparable data because the data isn't what percentage of threshold were you at in terms of power. It's what is the delta between right and left. That's what's relevant about this drill. So if you have a big difference in right and left, then you know, oh, I've got big problems. I'm pedaling way differently. The intensity is as fast as you can go while still only using that left leg. So 100% intensity, but since you've got a far lower recruitment of muscle fibers, you're not going to be anywhere near threshold. Your power is probably going to be somewhere around high zone two, maybe some zone three sections until things really get nice and burny. You're going to get a solid burn. And if you're doing it right, you're going to feel that 12 o'clock power phase, that engagement of the forward and down pedal stroke, and you're gonna get a nice solid burn all through the hip. That tells us that you're doing it right. If you start to use the right leg, you have to constantly remind yourself not to do that. Some tricks you can use to help yourself not use the right leg if you continually go back to that pattern. 
One is just unbuckle your shoe completely on the right. That helps because then even though you can still push down, it helps you remember if you start to pull up a little bit or pull back or whatever, you'll feel that looseness. The second, it also is just a proprioceptive cue to remember that leg is turned dead, off, turned off on this, on this interval. The second thing you can do is you can unclip, but rest your foot on that pedal. How effective that will be will depend a little bit on what type of pedal system you have, but that's a good indicator. And if you feel yourself clip in, then you know you pushed. So unclip again and just rest it there. If you do it right, riders who come past you on the climb should be very puzzled <laughs> because they shouldn't be able to tell that you're only pedaling with one leg unless they happen to notice that your bowers are loose on the right side. But they should wonder why you're going so slowly. You'll probably be going pretty slow. And then they'll look at the expression on your face and if they see that you're actually working hard, they'll be even more puzzled. And they'll start looking at your tires to see if you've got a flat or something. And that's okay. They should not notice a big effort in terms of upper body movement, pelvic motion, rolling, rocking, head movement. You want the upper body to be relatively still. You're driving with the active leg only and you're focusing on these basics, which is push forward at 12, one, two, and drive back at 435, 536. The three o'clock, again, will take care of itself. You might feel it, but it's gonna be a natural instinct to do that. Then let the other leg passively drive the pedal on the way down. You'll feel the bike decelerate, especially on steeper sections. That's normal. Then as soon as 12 comes, that's your chance to fire this active leg, the left leg. So you'll do, so if your first tempo took eight minutes, it might take you 10 to do it with one leg. Then you ride down, do the right leg and so forth. So you can get two or three reps on each side. Uh, three reps on the left, two to three on the left, two to three on the right. You can go home and compare numbers. You want to alternate right and left sides, starting with the left first. And then again, over that, over you do that workout for a few weeks, you'll get better at it. The first time you, most of my riders do it, they're kind of like, man, that was hard. I really struggled to only use the one leg. We're used to that central pattern generator taking over and just going right, left, right, left, right, left. So by breaking it down and making it a bit granular, you can teach yourself that new technique driving through the bottom of the stroke with a flat foot. This is a subtle point. If you cannot drive through the bottom of the stroke without a little hiccup or a dead spot, that means probably one, your hamstrings inhibited or turned off. Not that likely. Could be weak, could be not driving through with a lot of force, but it's more likely by far that your saddle's way too high. When the saddle's too high, you can't drive through the bottom of the stroke effectively. And this is where Lamont's book was misleading. He described scraping the mud off the bottom of your foot. And whenever we scrape the mud off the bottom of our foot, what we tend to do is point our toe into plantar flexion and scrape that mud. But really what I want you to do is drive with hamstring into the heel cup of the shoe with a flat foot. Drive, feel your heel pulling into or driving into the bottom of that shoe. Pull back, not up. That's the key. And if you really want to dial in your saddle height on your own to the point where you can activate hamstring at the bottom of the stroke and eliminate the dead spot, you can do this drill and progressively lower your saddle until you feel that connection. You will feel the dead spot disappear, especially on a steep seated climb, even when pedaling with both legs. But when you raise your saddle, you'll feel the point where it disconnects and you can no longer drive at the bottom dead center of the stroke. This is not a trivial point in my fitting philosophy and it is also not accepted by a lot of other fitters. There are many other fitters who completely ignore this landmark and will put the saddle much higher. 
And I don't know if their logic is they want to exceed triple extension or if they just think it looks neat aesthetically to have some plantar flexion to the bottom of the stroke. I can't say what their logic is because I'm not in their brains. But for me, this is a really, I've again, ridden a million different saddle heights and seen a million different riders. Some riders can ride blissfully their whole career, plantar flexing through the bottom of the stroke and seemingly do okay. My opinion is they're giving up performance because they're exacerbating the drive, the dead spot at the bottom of the stroke. What camouflages this or makes riders completely unaware of it? If they live in flat terrain, they may never know. And they come to Colorado and they go, man, I suck compared to my peer group. Every time we go to a hill, I get dropped. It must be the altitude. Yeah, it probably is some of the altitude, but it's also because your saddle's like 30 mils too high and you're not even close to using hamstring at the bottom. So you've got this obnoxious egg-shaped pedal stroke with a massive 3.4 and a massive 9.10. We do not want an oval egg-shaped pedal stroke. We want to smooth things out. We accept that the pedal stroke will become more pointed at higher intensities. Really short, sharp, seated efforts, let alone standing, totally different discussion. Yeah. Not even going to approach standing in this podcast. It could be its own episode. But so pedal stroke does change based on intensity and terrain, of course. But these guidelines apply to most situations, and this should be goals for most situations. When you start going really hard, when you're doing maximal seated efforts, that's when you become Chris Case and you let the programming take over and do your best. Because the harder and faster you're pedaling, as soon as you cross threshold, in particular, you upregulate sympathetic nervous system activity, and that means the central pattern generator is going to take over more and more because you are retreating into the reptile brain. The harder you go, the more under threat your system perceives it to be, even though it's a self-imposed threat. It's a stimulus. It's a load. So your body's going to default to whatever it knows. So that's why we use the lower intensities to reprogram and make new engrams for smoother pedaling, and the higher intensity stuff we let it take care of itself as best we can. And there's a certain amount of personality that comes on the bike when people go hard. And if you want evidence of that, just search Tommy Vokler and you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Would you ever recommend to people that they discard temporarily or forever their clipless pedals mm -hmm. and ride flat pedals? Great question. So there's a pretty cool article out there we'll refer to in our show notes from a guy named... Bike James. His website is bikejames.com. James and Wilson, I believe, is his name. I believe you're correct. And um, I think this guy's got some pretty smart things to say. He makes a pedal called the Catalyst Pedal. And his whole thing is that we really don't need clipless pedals. He, he's not anti-clipless pedal. He's not saying that no one needs them. In a particular, and I would agree with that statement for sure. I'm not saying everyone should go put flats on their road bikes. But he makes some pretty powerful arguments as to why clipless pedals actually can cause some dysfunction. Um, in particular, he focuses on the the emphasis of pulling up at nine o'clock, and he and I are on the same page in this respect. I think that that just confounds people's pedaling styles and confuses the nervous system a bit. And normally, what I see whenever someone comes in and they tell me they're pulling up hard at nine, they think they're doing it on both sides, and they're not. They're doing it more on one than the other, and Okay, basic logic for a moment. If we have a central pattern generator that's basically saying push left, push right, push left, push right, and you're trying to add to that programming by saying push left, pull up right, push left, pull up right, that's too many programs for most people. And one of them is going to get dumped. And the first one that gets dumped is the non-dominant pull up. 
And then what happens is you pull up harder on one side than the other and you begin to rotate the pelvis around the axis of the C-tube. Hence the comment, I feel like I'm twisted on the bike. Hmm. And for those of you who have worked with me, you'll know this, but um, for those of you who are perplexed by the fact that you are twisted around the saddle, the axis of the bike, or you feel like you're twisted and you think you're the only person who's like that, you're not, I'm telling you. In fact, it is far more common for people to have that sensation than not. And the first place to try to, the first place to look at this is exactly where what James Wilson suggests, which is how often do you ride a bike with flat pedals? Do you have a townie? Ride it with flat pedals. Uh, he hypothesizes in one of his articles, which is called the Flat Pedal Manifesto, Ooh. which is a great title, I think, that some of the problems or dysfunction occur in cyclists when they become cyclists rather quickly step into the sport and they immediately transition to clipless pedals and they fail to learn the basic technique of pedaling on flats. And his kind of philosophy is that if you learn to pedal on flats first and then periodically use, I think I'm speaking for him a bit here, maybe we'll have him on the podcast at some point. His philosophy is that if you learn to use flats properly and then supplement with clipless pedals at times, you might be okay. And I would agree with that uh, because it'll sort of baseline your technique and prevent you from starting to develop bad habits of yanking up too hard or becoming too dependent on that clip-in uh, clip aspect or that clipped, that fixed aspect to the pedal. So here's a good quote from uh, James Wilson on his site. The human body is not set up so the muscles are mere images of each other. The hamstrings are not the backside quads. The hamstrings are made to powerfully extend the hips while less powerfully flexing the knee. And the quads are made to powerfully extend the knee while less powerfully flexing the hip. Together they both work with and counteract each other to produce lower body locomotion. Train the hamstrings to flex the hips and stabilize the knee and the quads to flex the knee and help stabilize the hip joint. That is how those muscles function in real life and how we should train them, not based on the old model of training each muscle that crosses a joint to powerfully flex it. So I like this quote from James a lot because he's simply pointing out really that the body is, it's a cybernetic organism, which is just a system of systems. And we do tend to think of muscles as individual pulleys and levers. And while I think that can be instructive from a learning standpoint, we need to understand that muscles don't work that way. They work synergistically. Same concept as we don't eat carbohydrates. We eat waffles. Hmm. We don't eat protein. We eat a steak or some eggs. Foods are never found in nature broken down into macronutrients, a pile of macronutrients and hamstrings are never found in nature. Just, you know, flexing the knee on their own. Right. So <laughs> that'd be weird. Right. So when we pedal, all these muscles move in a synchronistic fashion. And that's why I think ultimately the best way to train your pedal stroke or improve it is to use methods that are real world on the road pedaling drills. So just to tie a knot on that pedal drill conversation, the two things you can do to help figure out pedal stroke and understand and intuit what I'm describing. One, put your bike in the trainer, make it level. Make it a trainer that somehow allows you to apply the rear brake so that you can have some force to push against the crank statically in different locations. 
You have to engineer some way to do that if you've got a smart trainer. Start with your pedal at 12 o'clock. Put the, the pedal, the foot close to flat. Push down and forward. Push forward and down. Forward first, down second. Kind of thinking about this directionally like east, northeast. Can you do that? Are, is it even mechanically possible? Do an experiment. Slide your butt all the way forward on the nose of the saddle. See what happens. Now try to push down with your flat foot. Can you do that? Probably not. I'm not looking at you. I don't know for sure what your joint angles are doing, but most riders, when they do this, their toe points down and they can't push down. If they were to push down into the heel, they would actually be pushing the crank backwards or through the bottom bracket. That is clearly not constructive pedal force. Now slide your butt all the way back to the very, very extreme end of your saddle. Depending on where your saddle is, this may be optimal setback or way too far. Now push down at 12 o'clock. What happens? Do you have a solid platform to push on and you feel the foot kind of maintain its level location, even though the ball of the foot, the axle is near the ball of the foot, or does your heel drop down excessively? That tells you some things about the mechanical setup of the leverage you have on the pedal at 12 o'clock. Work through each hour, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. At three o'clock, does your foot push straight down over the pedal? Slide forward in the saddle, slide backwards in the saddle. Work your way down to bottom dead center, which is at about 5.30. Pull back. Feel the heel of the foot driving into the heel cup of the shoe. Is your toe pointed into plantar flexion at this moment, or can you do it with a flat foot? Go back to nine o'clock, yank on the pedal, observe what happens. Notice that when you pull up hard and, and use the hamstring to flex the knee, that the toe will go into plantar flexion. Notice that this sets up the power phase in a poor moment of joint angle force at the beginning of the power phase at 12 o'clock. Play with this on the trainer and you'll begin to hopefully understand and intuit what muscles are firing and which ones aren't. You can start to disseminate what aspects of your bike fit may or may not be set up to pedal this way. Then go out and try my dead-legged pedaling drills. The first effort is both legs tempo. That helps you get warmed up and remember what it's like to ride your bike in case you forgot. And then efforts two and four are left leg and possibly six. Efforts three, five, and seven are right leg. Go home, compare the delta, try it for a couple weeks. What's nice about this drill is because you're doing it on a grade of around five to 7%, your cadence could be pretty low. You're only pulling with one leg. So your cadence might be in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Just like Chris and Trevor spoke about on their recent episode on big gear efforts with Neil Henderson, maintain alignment. In particular, we don't want the knee to collapse medially towards the top tube. We want the knee or the tibial tuberosity, which is the little bump just below your patella, to be roughly over the middle of the foot or the second, third toe, somewhere in there, during the power phase of the stroke. If your knee is hitting the top tube, you're setting yourself up for some problems. So if you can't seem to make power without the knee hitting the top tube, then go home and find someone who can help you. Practice these efforts. Because they're at a low cadence, when we're pedaling at a lower cadence and a high torque, you can feel the pressure of the bottom of the shoe or the footbed on your foot. 
that proprioceptive feedback and the low cadence helps you learn this pedal stroke. It's going to be much harder to cognitively learn a new pedal stroke at a higher power or particularly over threshold because the central nervous system kind of defaults to sympathetic mode or at a higher cadence because it's just too quick for you to process what's happening consciously. So that's why riding at a lower cadence can really help you learn to fire this new engram of movement and drive through with a flat foot at the bottom of the stroke, drive over 12 o'clock at a flat foot, make use of the entire power phase, 12 to six. Focus on one leg at a time, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That is the essence of learning is perfect form, perfect practice makes perfect. That's my favorite drill for learning how to pedal on this stuff. We just spoke for nearly two hours. Maybe it's been over two hours at this point. I want to borrow a element of fast talk here, bring it into this show, because there was a lot to digest. And this is, maybe that was, I don't want to say it was too much, but that was a, a, a lot, and now we're going to give you a distilled version of that. Your take-home message, Colby, on how to pedal a bike. Can it be done? Can it be done? Distill, condense. One, pedal with a flat or nearly flat foot for the entire stroke. Two, emphasize the first phase of the power stroke. That's when the crank's vertical at 12 o'clock. Really focus your effort on beginning to push forward and down at 12 into one and two o'clock, and then focus on 4.30, 5.30, pulling back, not up, but back at the bottom of the stroke. Don't worry about three, four, and five. They will take care of themselves. That's your natural instinct to push down. We've all got that. So what you're doing is taking that natural phase, that ability to push down, and you're smoothing it by focusing on the, I'll say, horizontal aspects of the pedal stroke, pushing forward at the beginning as soon as that cranks vertical and pulling back into the heel cup of the shoe at the bottom. That's pretty much it. There you go. How was that? Wow. All that talk about that. Just do that. Just do that. Just do that. If you can't do those things, then you need to look at saddle offset, saddle height, cleat position, footbeds. You need a bike fit. Or possibly, if you really can't, if, if you're convinced all those things are dialed and you really can't do that, it's possible also that your body is a little bit mechanically challenged and you need some myofascial release, some mobility work, some strength and conditioning, etc. You're only one man. All those listeners out there are clamoring to get a bike fit with Colby Pierce, but they can't because A, they don't live here. B, you can't see them all, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's just lies and propaganda. They make airplanes for that problem. Oh, so you do want to see all these people. But my, my question is going to be, okay, so they can't get here. They don't, you know. Yes, is there question. is there a is there a way and they and they buy into this philo let's call it a philosophy because you know there have been some um, moments in here that they, they they've been to other fitters and they're like nah, Colby Pierce he's a dum dum but they've listened to this episode and they're like Colby Pierce is awesome how do they find a fitter that agrees with this philosophy is there a Steve Hogg approved fitting database indeed. So there are two references I can send you to. We'll put the links to these in the show notes, but 
One is if you go to stevehogbikefitting.com, on his front page, he's got a, a landing dealy bob called the Steve Hogg Bike Fitting Team, and it details the, oh, I have to count now, one, two, three, four, five, bear with me, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven fitters worldwide who are certified to train in Steve's methods. That's a small number. That's a, that's a, uh, exclusive crew. Steve has very high standards uh, as who he lets in his club, his clubhouse. I was the second trained fitter under his method. <clears throat> we have fitters on just about every continent now. Well, not the icy ones. So if you... Well, There's no I, penguins that are Steve Hogg approved? Not so far. Damn. I want my bike fit with an emperor penguin. We do have uh, a guy in Scotland and a guy in Canada. So in Ontario, I mean, that's pretty icy, right? That counts. Hmm. So we have fitters worldwide. That'd be my first choice. The second option, if you can't find anyone on Steve's list, that's a good resource. And I get this question quite a bit. So I'm happy to share this on the site. There is a website called the International Bike Fitting Institute or IBFI-certification.com. I'll drop that into the show notes as well. And when you go to that page, you'll see a uh, a menu that says for fitters and for cyclists and then there's a find a fitter button you can hit and it sends you to a map with all sorts of little happy gizmos and you can zoom into your chosen location and find a fitter and it's got information about the fitters on the site including their credentials and it rates them levels one through four and the higher the rating the better they are it's sort of backwards from usa cycling categorization when you're a four you're really good and there are some good fitters on there. Uh, so it's a good resource for people to learn a little bit more about their local fitters. And if you get really lost, you can also just email me and I'll do my best to give you my hand-selected fitters. There are some fitters that I definitely recommend who are not on this list or who are on IBFI but are not Steve Hawk fitters. Mm -hmm. It's not an exclusive club. We are inclusive. Very good. Now everybody knows how to pedal a bicycle. Yay, go forth and pedal the bicycle. Hi there, Cycle Knots. Just some quick thoughts to wrap up this podcast. There are a few bits I want to mention. I do my best to speak with clear language, and this is a highly complex topic, obviously. Upon editing, I did notice a few errors. Not critical errors in the sense that I said the wrong thing, but more a few terminologies that were juxtaposed. Unfortunately, given time constraints and the enormous amount of work, that all of us have to do. It's not always possible to edit every single one of these. So if you get confused or you want to call me out, then just hit me and we'll discuss. Remember, my email is cyclinginalignment at fastlabs.com. Also, I'll mention that I wanted to unpack a bit about the primal patterns of cycling. These are Paul Check's ways of reducing all sports movement into six primal movements or primal pattern movements, as he calls them. These are the bend, lunge, push, pull, squat, and gait. Cycling has all of these in some form except for the squat. The squat would be both legs at once. So cycling is a bend pattern. It is a hip-hinged pattern statically. That's how you sit on the bike. It's continual lunging as we pedal with the left leg and the right leg. 
These are effectively lunge movements. When we pull on the bars, specifically when standing out of the saddle, we are pulling with either the ipsilateral or contralateral arms. Ipsilateral is just a really fun way to say same-sided, and contralateral means other-sided. So when you're pulling on the hoods on a steep climb, for example, out of the saddle, you're pushing down with the left leg, you're pulling up with the left arm. Provided that your core is strong enough to help deal with all these forces made at the distal segments, otherwise known as your foot and your hand, you'll go straight and the bike will go forward. But if your core is really weak, then all that force pulling on the bar and pushing on the pedal just results in a lot of twisting of the torso. So the pull pattern is used pretty extensively during cycling. Also, sometimes you'll pull with a contralateral arm when you are sprinting or accelerating with a lot of force. Depends a bit on the starting speed of the acceleration, the gear you're in, the grade, some other things. But we can pull with the ipsilateral, the contralateral, or both arms at once in different moments of cycling. Also, there is a push pattern in cycling in the sense that we are holding our torso up. Specifically, we are in the drops. If you think about it, you're pushing against the drops to support some of the weight of your torso. If your saddle's far enough behind, behind the bottom bracket, then your saddle supports most of the weight of your torso, or at least more than your arms do and shoulders do. Of course, we talked a lot in the podcast about how the gait cycle is, I think, the neurological basis for pedaling. So what I'm saying is, of the primal pattern movements, we've got all of them in cycling to some degree, except the squat. Also, in regards to the dead leg drill I described on the pod, there are a couple bits I want to mention, and I'll wrap these up quickly. I know it's been a long, a long episode, but when you are learning this drill, or really anytime you're pedaling, I like to ask my athletes to think about the foot as a tripod. What does that mean? Think about the way you're delivering force to the shoe or the pedal and visualize the center of the heel bone or the calcaneus on the bottom of the foot, the center of the first metatarsal, and the center of the fifth metatarsal. The metatarsals are just the, the ball of the, of the foot, the ball of the first toe, that's the first metatarsal. The ball of the fifth toe, that's what we would describe as the, the fifth metatarsal. So when you have even pressure on those three points, then the foot is a tripod and it is a strong foot that delivers force evenly. If you are a pronator, meaning your foot or ankle rolls towards the midline of the body, collapses in towards the top tube, you probably are placing more pressure on the first metatarsal and probably the inside of your heel. So to correct that, you would begin to make force by delivering it a little more to the outside of the foot towards the fifth metatarsal head until things feel more balanced. This is a really, I won't say complex task, but this is something that requires some training and some knowledge in the world of strength and conditioning, but I'm just planting the seed. This is something you want to investigate. If you get chronic pressure at the ball of the foot, there's a good chance you're a pronator. Pronation is any time any body part collapses towards the midline. So if your knees are brushing the top tube, that's a, fine, a sign of pronation. If your ankles collapse and your ankle bones hit the crank arm, that is a sign of pronation. Likewise, if your shoulders roll in, that is a sign of pronation. That's a form of pronation. 
I'm not saying pronation is good or bad. It's kind of demonized, but you should understand the concept. The opposite of pronation is supination or expansion away from the midline of the body. So imagine taking your arm out and supinating a shoulder by rolling it out and your hand will come up until it can hold a bowl of soup. There you go. There's your mnemonic. Now you remember what supination is all the time and you won't get confused on which one is pronation and which one is supination. Another point on the dead legs, they're a good training exercise and they can help instill some of the philosophies I have in how to pedal a bike. They can also be used as a diagnostic tool, meaning if one hamstring gets a lot more sore or a higher rate of burn during the intervals than the other, that means you've got an imbalance and you should look into that. It could mean you're using one hamstring more than the other. It could mean that one hamstring is inhibited. It could mean that one hamstring is overstretched. It could mean you're twisted around the pelvis. There are lots of rabbits to chase in this case, but we all love chasing rabbits. That's why we're here. So I'm just letting you know that if you do have big imbalances during that exercise, if you do two or three by left and two or three by right, and you're getting a big difference in the power and in the sensations you're having, either in the muscular burn might be one way or in seat, sit bone pressure on the saddle, otherwise known as the ischial tuberosities, the contact with the saddle. If you get more twisting or less pelvic stability, or maybe your back gets sore on one of them, those are all signs. Anytime we have asymmetrical patterns or challenges that come up during training like this, we want to look at them and dig into it and try to figure out what's going on. Likewise, if you feel that you are unable to make that foot pressure like using the foot as a tripod during one side or the other, that's also something to look into. Try to figure out if you're supinating or pronating. There are lots of ways to handle that stuff. So I just want to give you the heads up on those little bits. Thanks again for listening. And again, if you have questions, cycling and alignment at fastlabs.com. I really appreciate you listening to my ramblings and my philosophies. Gotten a lot of great feedback on this podcast and that's what motivates me and inspires me to keep it going because I am here to help people and that's what I'm getting from this for the most part. So thanks. Thanks.